Man, I'm giddy this morning. I get, I have, I get paid to brag on Jesus, y'all. There's worse jobs in life. You know what I'm saying? Like I get to get up here and spend my time bragging on the, the man that we came to honor and worship and celebrate. And so it's just going to be a good morning. Uh, I want to start with this. You guys know I talk about in almost every sermon food, right? And I told you pretty much every sermon food's going to get mentioned. Probably second favorite on my list of things in life is sports. So I'm going that direction to start out this morning. And I'm just going to ask that you'd stick with me. To start, though, I want to put a picture up of, of a guy. This is a current picture of him. And I want to see if any of you recognize who this guy is. That's not him. Maybe that's God going, you guys, let's keep praying. Like, like. That's, any, any of you recognize him? Probably a few of you, probably next to none of you. Now, this guy was a hero of mine in junior high and high school, so much so that I named my first dog after him, literally. Like, loved this guy growing up. Uh, this, if you don't recognize him, this is a picture of him when I was a kid in junior high and high school. This was him in college. This is uh, number 44, Brian Bosworth. Look at that guy, right? What steroids can do for a man. Like, beautiful. <laughs> I loved Brian Bosworth. So we got our first dog when I was a teenager and I, me and my brother didn't even have to think about it. We named him Boz. My brother wore the number 44 in football. My brother had the sweetest hair like that with all the lines on the sides and the mullet in the back. Uh, Brian Bosworth was two-time defensive player of the year in college. He went into the NFL draft with such potential, such high expectations. And he got into the NFL draft and he was drafted number two overall. And that didn't shock anyone because he's two-time defensive player of the year in college. In fact, he was one of the first defensive players because it rarely happens to be uh, nominated to win the Heisman Trophy Award, which almost always goes to an offensive player. So he gets to the pros he gets drafted number two overall by the Seattle Seahawks, and he would have a career that lasted just under three years. His career didn't officially end when this happened, but it basically ended one night on Monday Night Football. Some of you, I literally watched this game live, but you can YouTube it, and it's a clip that's been viral forever. His career ended the night he got introduced to a guy by the name of Bo Jackson from the Raiders. You guys remember that? It was Monday Night Football and Brian Bosworth was as cocky as he looks in that picture and he had been talking some smack and some trash and he plays linebacker and Bo Jackson who's probably might be the greatest athlete of my generation that I've ever seen played multiple professional sports. He would get the ball. He would run it straight up the middle. Brian Bosworth would go to fill the gap and that did not go well for him. He got literally destroyed and ran over. Bo Jackson would break his tackle, knock him on his rear. He'd run about 60 yards. In fact, he was running so fast. Remember, he had to run all the way into the locker room hallways because he couldn't slow down and they were waiting for him to come back out and celebrate. And that was really the end of Brian Bosworth's career. Two-time defensive player of the year, number two pick overall, and it's ended in three seasons. Go ahead and put a picture of, of this guy. Next to none of you probably know who this guy is. Right there, he's playing for Michigan State. This guy is a guy by the name of Tony Mandrich. Okay? They called him the Incredible Bulk. Now, when he's playing, this is again in the, uh, the late 80s, no offensive lineman looked like that. They all do now because we've evolved and it's crazy and athletes are like never before. But back then this was the first offensive lineman that had like 4% body fat. It was all muscle. You know, the thing called the combine where they test the athletes before they draft them. He was setting, he ran a four, seven as an offensive lineman. 
He got before he ever got drafted or made a dime from football. Sports Illustrated put him on the front of their magazine. I used to get every issue when I was a kid, and it literally said this, the greatest offensive lineman ever. He would get drafted third overall. He had to the Packers, by the way, I'm going to leave that alone, but he had a, uh, by his standards, best offensive line ever. He would end up playing for three different teams in just over six seasons, which isn't bad for the NFL, but not when you've been called by Sports Illustrated, the greatest lineman of all time, right? Do you know who got drafted just after him? Barry Sanders, the GOAT. You know who got drafted right after Barry Sanders? I mean, this guy was in front of Barry Sanders, then Derek Thomas, Hall of Fame, rest in peace, Derek. Hall of Fame linebacker, outside linebacker for the Kansas City Chiefs, one of the best I've ever seen. You know who got drafted right after that? Again, he's in front of all of them. Primetime, Deion Sanders, right? What a draft. But this guy, best offensive lineman ever. And they call him one of the biggest draft busts ever. He would eventually have some steroid, no shocker there, steroid scandals and some other stuff that would get him out of the game. Put up this guy right here, and, and, then, and I promise I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. Anyone know who that is? I love this guy. He's a huge fan. He played less than 90 games in the NBA, which is a tragedy because he was picked first overall in the 2007 draft. He would play just under 90 games with two different teams in less than three different seasons. He was plagued by injury. Broke my heart. You can even see him in in the modern times now. He's just an incredible individual. But he just did not make it that long in the pros. All major league sports teams have this thing that they do to get players, to develop their team, to cultivate their team. It's the thing called the draft, right? If you're a sports fan, you understand this. And if you're a sports fan, you know what I'm talking about. The draft is a love-hate proposition, is it not? And here's why. Here's why, and here's where I'm going this morning. Because at the end of the day, no matter how much due diligence the teams do, the owners do, the GMs do, no matter how much film they watch, no matter how much they go by what they did in college and before that, you are putting all of your hope in this pesky little thing that I have a love-hate relationship. This one pesky little word called potential. You're staking your whole organization on this thing called potential. And I I was thinking to myself all week when I was thinking about those guys, think if Jesus treated us the way sports teams treat their players. Think if the kingdom of heaven was based on a draft. If that was the case, then Jesus wouldn't have came as he so eloquently said he came. He would not have came to seek and save the lost. You know what he would have came to do? He would have came to seek and make contract with potential. Because that's what the guys do when they get drafted. They're getting drafted off their potential and then they make contract with that potential. Here's the problem though with contracts. As easily... Let me get a piece of paper here. As easily as a player on their, can sign their name to a contract, someone of higher authority can at some point do that. Right? As easy as they sign those contracts, as beautiful of a day it is, there are so many stipulations embedded in that contract that if your performance isn't what it was supposed to be or that potential doesn't come to fruition in the way that they had their expectations set on you as a player, they'll find a way to rip that thing up or they'll put you on waivers or they'll just let you go 
Or they'll trade you another team and say, we don't want you anymore. Think if the kingdom of heaven worked like that. But can I give us some amazing Christmas news this morning? We do not follow a God of contracts. We follow a God of covenant. And it cannot be ripped up. In the Old Testament, we serve a God who wrote his heart on stone, tablets of stone. Quite a bit harder to rip up with the human hands than paper, is it not? But even more importantly than that, the first time we really see covenant with God in the Old Testament scriptures is with a guy named Abraham. And I'm not sure why God does what he does. I'll have some questions for him in heaven. This will be one of them. But for whatever reason, he chose as the first covenant that would be just a foreshadow, just a type of the ultimate covenant that would come. He would, he would, he would have all of the men in Israel get circumcised. Ouch, right? Men getting circumcised. That was his covenant. And I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but there's one thing I do know about that particular procedure. It is irreversible. When that thing is gone, it is gone. There's no coming back. And way more important than the Old Testament, can we remember what the contract, what the covenant of God is written about in the New Testament? It's written in blood. The precious blood of Jesus. Right? Irreversible cannot be ripped up. You cannot be traded. You cannot be put on waivers. You cannot with God be let go. Covenant, which I'm talking about this morning, is founded upon this thing that the Greeks gave name to. It's this thing called agape. It's this love that is beyond any other love that you and I have ever experienced. Agape love is the most powerful, I promise you this, it is the most powerful force on planet earth. Agape love is the most transcendent force on planet earth. Do not take my word for it. Listen to what the apostle Paul says in first Corinthians 13. He dedicates this whole chapter to idea of agape love. He fleshes it out. He defines it for us. He talks about what it is and he talks about what it isn't. And then when he finally gets to his concluding thoughts about this thing called agape love, here's what he says. He says, now these three remain faith, pretty big deal, right? Hope, I talked about that a couple weeks ago. The Bible says that's our anchor. The Bible says this about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those are two huge things, right? These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But then he finishes with a really interesting observation and statement of truth. He says, but the greatest of these is what we talk about today. The greatest of these is love. You ever thought about that? Because faith is a big deal. Hope's a big deal. So what is it about love that makes it the greatest? And the one thing, I don't know everything about this, still learning, but the one thing I do know for sure is love. When I said it's the greatest, most transcendent force on planet earth, the reason I say that is because love is the only thing, agape love, that will transcend the grave. You understand when you go to heaven, faith will not be required? And I'm not mad about that. Faith is a beautiful thing on this side of eternity because we cannot see God. We cannot give God a hug. We cannot have a verbal, literal conversation face to face. We can't sit down over a cup of coffee and figure out life in the tangible presence of God. So faith right now pleases God because it is a mechanism of intimacy between us and between him. But you will not need faith in heaven. You understand that? Hope, as I said two weeks ago, anchors our soul on this side of eternity, but there will be zero need for hope in heaven because hope is defined in the scriptures as this, being sure of what you hope for and certain of what 
you can't see. When we get to heaven, hope will no longer be necessary because what you're sure of and what you hope for that you cannot see all of a sudden for an eternity, you will be face to face in the tangible physical presence of God. So while faith and hope is beautiful, the only thing that transcends the grave that we will practice and live out effortlessly in heaven, I can't wait for that, is this thing called agape love. It is the single greatest, most fundamental aspect of our faith. It's this agape, otherworldly love. And Paul, he starts to define it for us. Now, the Greeks knew what I'm, I'm learning as I get older. Uh, in fact, I was struggling with this message at the beginning of the week because I was telling my wife, I'm like, I'm like Rachel, what do I talk about? We're in week four of this Advent series, and I've got the best, but probably the hardest task because, man, love's a big word, is it not? I mean, there's a lot of things when it comes to love. I love Jesus, but I also love the San Francisco 49ers, right? And it's like, what do you do with those two things? And the Greeks understood this, these philosophers. And so they literally gave uh, four different names for this idea of love and four different ideas and categories of what they are. Uh, most of you have probably heard these before, but the first one is this. This They would have considered, and, and I think they're right, they would have considered this the lowest level the lowest manifestation of human love, and it's eros, right? It's where we get the word erotic from in our English language. This is a love that has to do with attraction, physical attraction. This is a love that has to do with uh, sexuality and sexual pleasure. And that's not a bad thing in its proper context, but it is by far, when you go down the list, the lowest form of love. Then we get phileo love, right? This is where we get the name, the city of friends, which is hilarious that it's Philadelphia. Have you ever been to one of their sporting events? It's, it's kind of ironic, but we get phileo love, right? It's the love of friendship and it's a, a little bit deeper than this arrow love, but it's still really problematic. It's friends. That can go south sometimes real quick. And then you get this, this third one called storge love. And I love this one. This will cause you some of the most joy in your lifetime. And guess what? This one will cause you some of the most pain in your lifetime. This is the love that comes between a mother and a father, a husband and wife to children and children back to their parents. Storge love. It's a beautiful thing. I still say that having my four kids is the single greatest endeavor and best thing that I will have ever done on this side of eternity was getting to be father to those kids. But with that great joy and responsibility can also come a lot of pain, can it not? And then you get to the single highest form of love, the love that the apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, and it's this agape love. And here's what gets so crazy about it. It's the one love that is just unconditional. It's covenant love. And Paul, uh, I read the last verse in 1 Corinthians 13, but I want to back up because he gives us, I don't know if it's all inclusive or not. I don't know if this is, they, they could add any more, but this is what Paul chose to write when he said, this is what agape love looks like. I love this because it's the wedding passage, right? This is what, I've done so many weddings uh, in my 20 years of being a pastor and about half of them or more, this gets read. And I love when they ask me to read this because I always meddle with them for a little bit at the altar. I do it kindly, but I tell that young man and that young woman, I tell them the truth about this passage. Paul says this, you want, you want to live a life of agape love, covenant love. Just know this, it's patient. <laughs> I'm already a C student at that. I don't know about you. Love is patient. Agape love is kind. Work on progress. I want to be kind. I believe in kindness. It's a beautiful thing, but I'm a work in progress. Listen to this one. It doesn't envy. 
Whoo. Envy. You know what envy is since I was talking about this pesky thing called potential earlier? Envy is just when you are staring at someone with more potential being acted out than you currently. And so you got to find reasons that where they're at on the food chain of life, it's got to be something scandalous or wrong. That's envy. It's when you're staring at potential that you personally haven't met yet. It's not love. It's not eternal. It does not boast. It is not proud. Agape love doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. You ready to get real? And this is about the time when I'm doing a wedding where I stop. It keeps no record of wrongs. This is when I stop and look at them and I say, guys, listen to me. Marriage is right. It's ordained by God, but it is not rational. Can I get an amen, husbands and wives? It's right. It's a godly institution, but it is not rational. Keeps no record of wrongs. I already feel vulnerable. I already feel nervous about that. That makes no sense on paper. When you have been profoundly and deeply hurt by someone, and then you hear us talking to you about agape love, saying it keeps no record of wrongs, there's nothing rational about that. But listen to me, Forest City, it's right. There's nothing rational about it. If you're waiting for rationality to be a part of agape love, it will never be something you get the absolute joy of experiencing. Keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with Jesus. Jesus is the truth. The truth isn't just some laws and some moral codes written down so we can follow. It's a person. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. He's the life. Emulating Jesus, knowing Jesus, being in an intimate relationship with Jesus, doing your best to carry and have the heart of Jesus. We rejoice in that, it says. It always protects, to which I say always? That's not rational. It always trusts? That sounds dangerous and vulnerable to me, does it not? Because some people just flat out aren't worthy of your trust. It always trusts, it says. It always hopes. That to me sounds beautiful, but kind of exhausting at times, right? And then listen to this. It always perseveres. And I should have put it up there, but the very next sentence says, love never fails. And you read that and you go, it fails all the time. But, but you got to remember the Greeks were saying agape love. You can pull that off. Never fail. But here's the problem. I have never been able to pull all of that off. Definitely not simultaneously. I'll have a few shining moments here and there. You will too. But at the the end of the day, I was thinking about it this morning as I was reading this over. I'm like, God, just like I was in school, I'm at, at, at my best, I'm a C student here. I'm a work in progress. But what Paul's ultimately trying to tell us is this is why we put all of our hope and we anchor everything, not in anything about us, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he does this meticulously, he does this effortlessly, and he does this perfect. And when your hope is in Jesus, it's amazing how it gets a little bit easier to not envy. When your hope is in Jesus, it's amazing how it gets a little bit easier over time to not be self-seeking. When you've put your whole hope in Jesus, knowing that you have absolutely no ability to live up to the potential of this list on this side of eternity, all of a sudden it gets more sweet and more easy and more beautiful to be in a relationship with Jesus because you're like, he's got this. He got the A plus and he got on a cross 
in my place for me, to give me that A plus in his presence face to face for me on my behalf. This is what agape love is. And there is only one person in the history of the world that has been ever able to give this to us with perfection. And it is Jesus. So when he comes and he gives us the law, yeah, you can clap for Jesus anytime you want. I love that. Love you, Jesus. So when he says the greatest law on planet earth is to what? Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is not a needy, narcissistic God needing you to just constantly give him more than everybody else. This is just Jesus going, listen to me. If you will put all your hope in me because I am the living expression of the invisible God. I am a earthly figure who gave you a perfect example of what your unseen heavenly father is like, was always like, and is going to be like for an eternity. So put your hope in him. And the more you put your love, your intimacy, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength into just communion and relationship with him over time and give yourself grace. We're in a classroom over time. You will instinctually and organically start to just love your neighbors a whole lot better than you used to the way Jesus loves your neighbors. So when I was talking with Rachel about this message, my wife this weekend, I'm like, babe, I don't know what to say. I'm in my head. I'm overthinking this because agape love is just too big of a concept. It's just hard for us to comp- always protect, always trust, always pre- keep no record of wrongs. That is a hard thing to talk about and flesh out. I said, what do you think? Because my wife always just has better answers than me. And she just got quiet for a minute because she was really thinking about what she thought. And she says, Chad, I don't preach like you. I don't study the Bible in the way you do. But here's what I know. Christmas is really hard for a lot of people. It's really beautiful and fun. But it also evokes a lot of emotions, does it not? Everything beautiful in your life will be heightened by Christmas. Everything traumatic and difficult and broken and hurting in your life will equally be evoked by Christmas. Which means I knew I was coming into a room this morning that's vulnerable. I knew I was coming into a room this morning where joy in people's lives for all the beautiful and good things is heightened right now, which is so good. But then we also have this conflicting feeling we walk in with because everything that's broken and everything right now that's a bit traumatic in your life, everything in your life right now that isn't the way you wrote it up. uh, Those of you like me walking in here and you know your potential and you rarely, if ever, live it up to it. You ever live in that tension? I do all the time. I always get this deep sense in my gut that there's something more possible and greater on the inside of me that I'm just not willing to let out or I'm too afraid to let out or I don't have enough confidence in myself to let I'm always living and this is this is the God who created us not to have sin in the way but when sin's in the way you're always going to feel this potential that's just never quite enough it's like the it's like the rabbit that goes around the track and then the dogs start chasing it but they can never catch it because it's on that track and they just always make it go a little faster than the greyhounds you guys know what I'm talking about this is kind of how I feel about potential And this is why I started out my message just saying, listen, thank God Jesus doesn't work off potential. He works off of you right here, right now. And listen to me, take joy in this. He's at peace with you right here, right now. Is he in the business of 
of sanctifying us, growing us. He absolutely has more for you. Yes, he wants to sanctify you. Yes, he wants to grow you, but never at the expense of how he feels about you right here, right now, in the moment. No one will be more present with you than Jesus. There's a pastor who famously said this, and I've never forgotten. He says, God is not in love with a future version of you. Keep that up on the screen. I just want you to sit with that for a minute. That's hard to trust. Right? It's poetic and it sounds nice. Something in you deeply wants to believe that, but your mind's already racing. Yeah, but. Don't you hate that? Yeah, but, comma. Yeah, but. But really, that's too good to be. That's agape love. If he was a contract God who came to seek and make contract with potential, then that, that, that doesn't work. I couldn't put that up there with integrity, but we serve a contract God, the God of the irreversible love, the God of the unconditional love, the God who doesn't rip things up and put you on waivers and trade you. The God who, when, when, when you're his, you are his. He is not in love with a future version of you. And this Christmas, no matter what feelings are being evoked, good and bad, I pray that you could just rest in that fact. My wife just looked at me and she just said, here's what I most love about Jesus and I think about it most at Christmas. So I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. She says, I just love that he's Emmanuel. I just love that he meets me where I'm at. He celebrates me when it's great. He celebrates with me when things are going amazing and he weeps with me when I'm in grief. He always has this ability because of agape love, because of covenant love, he has this ability to meet you right where you're at and be okay with it. Again, it doesn't mean he's gonna keep you there, but he knows something we often forget because this is a dangerous proposition. It's irrational because this is what agape love is. It's irrational. He knows if I can meet someone right where they're at, they'll put their trust in who I am. And when they put their trust in who I am, over time, I'll get them to where they need to go. So I don't have to control. I don't have to manipulate them. I don't have to be overbearing with them. I don't have to helicopter parent them, if you will. I can be right where they're at. And that's what my wife said. And I said, well, I don't know if it's good or not, but you just blessed my soul. Would you come preach this instead of me this weekend? She said, absolutely not. I will not do that. I said, well, then that's where I'm I'm going with this. I want people in here. I trust my wife. And I want all of you in here who are feeling this Christmas, all the feels to just know he meets you where you're at. And I think, first of all, and if you'll let me, I'm just going to cliff notes some of the sweetest moments that we've all heard about before in, in, in the gospels. But I think about the woman at the well embedded in shame. She had five husbands. She was working on number six. We would find out Jesus would read her mail and tell her that. This was such a black mark in the Jewish culture. We know the story, right? She, she would do what the rest of the women would do. They would have to go out and for the whole day, they, for their families, they would have to draw water at a particular well and they would go out around eight or nine in the morning because it was so hot in the Middle East back then. But do you know what time we know? You know the story. She would go to the well at what time? Noon. Why? Shame. Same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. This is what shame does. It makes you hide. Makes you cover things up. She'd rather be in the scorching heat than be comfortable with other ladies because of how they felt about her. But, but, but what's Jesus feel about her? 
He loves her so much right where she's at that you know what he does? He puts his reputation, his rabbinical reputation on the line by walking into enemy territory, going into right into the middle of a city that he was supposed to walk around and he just sits with her and he meets her right where she's at and he starts to have a conversation with her. And he, 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 he reads a little bit of her mail and it kind of catches her off guard. And he says, listen, you've, you've been drawn from this well for water that you have to keep coming back to day after day after day. But listen to me, I will, I will be a water for you. Rivers of living water can flow out of you through me and it can start to fill this void that you've been trying to fill with the next husband after the next husband after the next husband after the next husband. And she goes and, She tells all of her friends to come meet this guy. And I love what uh, uh, Beth Moore says. She says, who other than Jesus could tell a woman everything wrong with her and she's excited to go tell all of her friends to come meet this guy? Like who other than Jesus, right? Like, but, but how disarming must he have been? How authentic must Jesus have been for her, not days, not months, not later, minutes after they have this incredible encounter, she's excited after he read her mail, she's, she made her more vulnerable, not less. You thought it would have dug the shame deeper. She's like, oh, you know too, you're out here too. But there was something about a Jewish rabbi coming to a woman from a different culture that they're supposed to be at enmity with each other. He's never supposed to go through that city, but he puts his reputation on the line by walking into that city and saying, I will become ceremonially unclean so that I can sit with you and let you know that I love you just the way you are. Now I want better for you because these patterns have been hurting you. But the way I'm going to get you better isn't by scolding you. It's not by reprimanding you. It's by sitting there and saying, I just have something better for you. Would you receive the invitation? And she does. And then she becomes this incredible evangelist like two hours later. Look at the power of letting Jesus just love you right where you're at. Jesus is not in love with a future version of you, but he is committed to a future version of you. I think about Thomas, debilitated by doubt. Some of you walk in here and and, and that's your story. I know because I struggle with it. I know I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to have no doubt and full faith, but that's just not true. Can I tell you something beautiful about doubt? Doubt is like anger. If you leverage it right, it's a beautiful gift to your soul. We wouldn't need faith if doubt didn't exist, right? Like, like doubt is just an invitation for faith to come alive if you know what to do with it. And the reason I love Jesus, the, the, one of the million reasons I love Jesus is his grace and kindness to Thomas in his doubts is otherworldly. It's not rational. Thomas was privy to three and a half years of living day to day, face to face with Jesus. Think if you got to do that. 12 guys essentially on planet earth out of the billions have been privy to be able to do that and a few other people in his life to be around him that much for three and a half years. Thomas saw him take wine or water and turn it to wine. Thomas saw him take two loaves, five loaves and two fishes and feed thousands of people. Thomas saw him speak to demons and them come out of people. Thomas saw him raise Lazarus from the dead with a spoken word. Thomas was privy to seeing things you and I have never gotten to see and still had the audacity after Jesus died and supposedly came back from the grave to say, I won't believe a thing of it till I see scars on that guy's hands. 
Do you know if I was God in the flesh, how put out I would be? I just died for you. I just got whipped and mocked and spit on and tortured and did nothing justly to deserve it for you. I told you a multitude of times I was going to do this because of my love for you. I told you I was going to come back from the grave multiple times. I did signs and wonders just so you could actually trust me. And it still wasn't enough, Thomas. And you feel condemnation for your doubts? (laughs) That's why Jesus would go on to do this with Thomas He wouldn't scold him, wouldn't yell at him. He didn't get mad at him. He didn't say, you're off the team. You're not a disciple anymore. I'm trading you. You're getting put on waivers. I'm ripping up the contract because he doesn't do that. With such compassion and kindness and understanding and grace, Jesus just walks up to Thomas and says, come here. And he just open-handedly puts his palms out. Says, all right, now, now do with that what you want. Jesus isn't afraid of your doubts this Christmas. He's not embarrassed or ashamed by your doubts. He's not put off by your doubts. He would go on to say in the passage where I'm talking about right now, if, if, if they saw and believed in me, if they got to see me, if someone like Thomas got to be around me for three and a half years and believed me, he goes on to say, how much more blessed is the person that can't see me yet believes? That's every one of us in this room. You know how proud God is of you for your faith? And your doubt is not an indictment on your faith. Doubt and faith are friendships trying to work together. Doubt is like an emotion. It's just trying to tell you, hey, we need to exercise some faith here. Hey, we need to ask questions here. Hey, we need to seek truth here. Like Trevor said earlier, we need to knock. We need to ask. We need to seek. I promise you it'll be found. And while you're having those doubts, just the worst thing you can do is just push those things down because you're trying to be noble and godly. Agape love makes it possible for you to walk into this room with doubts and know that the God that you're doubting or the things that you're doubting about that God just looks at you with open hands and says, what do you need? What do you need? That's why I love Christmas. Because he's Emmanuel and he comes down here in the flesh to show us what our God who is unseen is like so we can keep putting our faith and our hope and our trust in him. I think about the woman caught in adultery. How much time I got? Okay, I'm doing good. I'm proud of myself today. I think about the woman caught in adultery, right? And this, this might be a few of you in this room on the back end of her worst mistake. So much collateral damage for her, her friendships, her community, her family, because she had gotten caught committing adultery. And we know what happens. The chief spiritual dudes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the the, the chief elders, they bring her out into the market square to make an example of her. They don't care about her. There's no agape love for her. All they want to do is use her as a pawn in their game because they know Jesus is around. They want to use her as bait to get Jesus there so they can trap him. They can show everyone that he's not who he says he is because they know that legally they have the right to stone her to death. So they get her out there. There's this big spectacle. All these really powerful, important men are about to stone this vulnerable, hurting, broken woman on the back end of her worst mistake. And guess what? Agape love shows up. And you know what agape love does before he ever calls her on her adultery, before he ever has anything to say to her as far as discipleship is concerned? Do you know what agape love does before it disciples? It defends. That's not rational, y'all. I'll defend you when your actions merit it. 
I'll defend you when you're not going to make a fool of me for how you've acted. I'll defend you when I don't get judged for defending you. But Jesus comes in, agape love, totally different. And before she's done anything to earn it or deserve it, he steps in front of her and says, let me have it. This is the gospel, y'all. He steps in front of this broken, vulnerable woman. And he just says this, if you're going to throw him, throw him at me. But before you throw him, let me just remind you, let him who, who uh, has an A plus on the 1 Corinthians 13 chart, let him cast the first stone. And we know what happens. The haters start to dissipate. One by one, the haters just start to kind of walk away. I love it. It says the old men go first. Why? They just got a longer rap sheet just by being old. I'm older than a lot of you. I'm younger than some of you. But those of you younger than me, I just got a bigger rap sheet than you. Why? I'm just older. Just older. That's it. So the older men start to walk away. First, they're like, yeah, we don't want to play this game. We know better. Young men are still zealous. And, you know, you know, the younger you are, the more you know. So they're still ready to throw stones. But then slowly, they all start to go away. In the presence of Jesus, he would not let her biggest mistake stand. He would not let that be her last hurrah. He would not let that biggest fault, that biggest moment where she got it wrong, where she missed the mark, he wouldn't let that be her story by standing in front of her and defending her before he disciples. And then you know what that starts to build? You know what agape love that is not rational, but it is right? Do you know what it starts to build in our life? Trust. And when you start trusting God, like we sang earlier today, lead me spirit where my trust is without borders. When you start to trust God, look out. Because that's when growth really happens. It's not because you're awesome. It's not because you did anything amazing. It's not because you just, you know, you grind and you hustle and you're just out better disciplined than everyone. It's no, no, no. I just kept trusting the radical, irrational nature of agape love. I kept receiving the unconditional, undeserved love of God over my life. I was relentless about it. I refused to let anyone, including the devil, try and get in the way of the fact that God is a gift. God gives us gifts, that grace and mercy is a gift. It's not something I earn. It's not something I work for. It's not something I deserve. It's just something as a little, like a little child, I receive. And she received it that day. And then you know what he does privately? He's so brilliant. He just pulls her aside alone when the haters are gone. He says, hey, you know that adultery thing? It almost got you killed. I understand why you went that direction. I know your backstory. I know why you made that foolish decision. I know why you put yourself in that precarious position and thought it would be the best thing for you. But listen to me. Look what, look what ended up happening. So, so, so when I wrote those, those sacred 10 laws and one of them is don't commit adultery, that wasn't me trying to be a stickler and tough. That was me trying to save you from death. And she, so he, he looks at her and he says, so, so do this. Don't do that again. Go and sin no more. He's not being mean with her. He's not being go and sin no more. He's going... He says, I almost got you killed, but, but I'm more than happy to stand in front of you in your defense and take the rocks that you deserve. I think about Zacchaeus. I love this one. Remember the wee little guy? You learned that in Sunday school. You sing the Zacchaeus song, wee little man was he. Climbed up in a tree because he was too short with the crowds. He may have been short, but he was a baller, y'all. He was not a tax collector. You know what he was? The boss of all the tax collectors. This guy had game. He was the chief tax collector. But he was short, so he got up in a tree. And in all of the crowds, all the hustle, all the bustle, I love Jesus so much. You know what Jesus does? He goes straight to him. He's going, anyone that would be willing to get up in a tree, 
especially uh, someone with short man syndrome, who that's just too much pride on the line to get up in a tree because he can't see. But he, he is so curious about me. He'll get up in a tree. Can I tell you, some of you may not even know Jesus or have a relationship with Jesus, but you came into this room today because you're curious. Can I tell you he's singling you out right now with such joy? Do you know what he says to Zacchaeus? This is the only thing he says to him when he's up in the tree. Zacchaeus, get down. I got to stay with you tonight. This guy's an arch enemy of rabbis. This guy steals from all of the people that Jesus was trying to minister to. This guy extorts them and he's in charge of the whole ring. He's as bad as it gets. He's the boss. He's the crime boss number one, Zacchaeus. And Jesus, Jesus, just because he's curious, like the power of curiosity, I'm just seeking, I'm just curious about Jesus. That alone says, hey, I'll stay with you. Come on, we got to go to your house. And by the time he's done with the sleepover, Zacchaeus promises to give fourfold back to everyone he's ever stolen from. That is the power of meeting someone where they're at. Mr. Rogers said it best. I love it. He said, if you really want a child dedicated his whole life to the kindness and teaching of children. Because if you really want a child to grow, you have to meet them where they're at. You cannot meet them with your ideals, moms and dads. And I know this is irrational. You're already going, yeah, but, comma. I do it. That's how I know you're doing it. You can't meet kids in in, in your ideals. You can't meet kids with potential. That's too big of a cross for any human, more or less a child to bear. That's why potential is this love-hate thing. I don't think there's something wrong with potential, but where it gets squandered and misappropriated is when we're more interested in people's potential than we are in the person that we're staring at right in the moment. They already know their potential more than you. God has put something on the inside of us that is powerful We know that we were born capable of more than what we are currently doing and contributing. Listen to me, to some degree, that feeling is never gonna go away. And if you do not know how to appropriate it right, it will absolutely drive you insane. Can I get an amen to that? Look, potential's great. I hope we all move forward. I want us all to grow, but never at the expense of thinking Jesus is waiting on you at some idealistic destination. And when you get there, then his favor's for you. Then his defense is for you. Then his help is for you. Then his grace is for you. No, 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 no. That's not how the gospel works. He meets you right where you're at. Well, we were yet what? Sinners. Christ died. He gave the ultimate act of, I see you, I know you, and I love you while you were flunking the 1 Corinthians 13 test. While I was flunking the 1 Corinthians 13 test, he said, I am going to meet you right there and I am going to, instead of you getting punished, I'm gonna get punished while I got an A plus on the test and then I'm gonna let you have my A plus in the record books. You cool with that, right? That's agape love, y'all. Man, I wish I had time for a couple more characters. I'll just, I won't give details, but Nicodemus, go read that story. It's John chapter three. It's the conversation with Nicodemus where Jesus says something we've all heard. He said, he would look at Nicodemus and go, for God so loved the world. He so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him, listen to this, would not perish, but have everlasting life. And we always leave out the next verse and I love it goes, for I did not come to this world 
to condemn it. I came to save it. So I can meet you where you're at. If I came to condemn it, you're done. I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to meet you right where you're at. God is so comfortable with that. We humans have, not, we humans have made that stupid, a stupid way to do relationships because there's no control involved. It's a loose, empty, it's an it's a open-handed relationship where you're like, hey, I, I, I know the potential in you, but I, I want to love the you right here, right now, no matter what you're going through. And I'm going to trust that motivation and growth and all of that stuff will be a byproduct of being met right where you're at. So can you just do this this Christmas? I'm just telling you what my wife told me to tell you. Can you just let Jesus be Emmanuel? Can you just let him love you for who you are right now? Just be in his presence. Just just throw the arms. Let him in his most gracious, disarming way just come to you, all you who are weary and burdened. Let him give rest for your soul. Pour out your heart to God for everything that Christmas is evoking that's difficult. Pour out your heart to God. He cares so deeply. We cast our cares. Our pastor, the apostle Peter would say it so beautifully. We cast our cares on him because he so deeply cares. No one cares more about you than Jesus. He's not thinking about your potential right now. He's thinking about this moment right here, right now. It's the realest thing. It's the only thing we got right now. So we don't got tomorrow yet. It's not real. Yesterday's gone. What you have is right now. And Jesus is completely comfortable with the right now. He knew every day recorded in his book before one of them would come to be. There is nothing in your life and my life that he is shocked by. So he says, you just get, you just get to come to me. My yoke is easy. He's like, please, please. He's so disarming. My yoke is easy. Please just keep coming to me. Pour out your hearts to me. My, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You walk in here heavy. I want to give you some lightness this Christmas. Listen, I can't talk you. I can't talk good enough for you to uh, feel like your problems are, are, are solved as you walk out the doors today. But by faith, here's what I can proclaim boldly is that you can walk out of these doors, casting your cares on Jesus and asking through his kindness and his power that he would lighten the load on your grieving and hurting and, and traumatized and broken soul. And it's his joy to do that. It's his joy to meet you where he, right where you're at. I, I've more than made my point. And so I just simply, I want to end with the single greatest thing I can do is that for the few of you, you came in here and you're, you're like Zacchaeus, you're curious. You wouldn't have came if you weren't curious. He loves it. He loves that you're here. He'll say, I'll put out my hands and show you anything you want. And I just want to do this as a middleman because I did it 20 some years ago. And it was the most beautiful thing I've ever done was give my life to Jesus. I received his invitation, his grace, his sovereign kindness over my life. He kept wooing me through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I don't have that. That's another testimony for another day. But for, for a couple years in my early 20s, when I was just, I was just gone so rogue and so prodigal, prodigal, his kindness just kept wooing me back to repentance. He was so kind to me in a season where I was so indifferent to him. And he just kept wooing me and he wouldn't give up on me. And he just kept waiting for me like the, father of the prodigal just keeps patiently waiting. And then I finally, one day out of my curiosity, I walked into a church like this and just broken and depressed and struggling. And they gave an invitation like I'm doing right now. And I just was like, yeah, I'll, I think I want that. And the trajectory of my life changed that moment. 
still got problems. I'm not gonna feed you some lies about coming to know Jesus. He said in this world, you'll have trouble. But you can also have joy. He says, be a good cheer. You can have joy with trouble. Why? Because I've overcame the world. So if you're in here right now, you're like, well, what does it look like to receive Jesus? It's not as complicated as sometimes we've made it. He just says, if you feel an invitation that's real, if you want to follow someone that will love you better than anyone on planet earth can ever love you, if you want to have someone to bring your darkest, deepest, most intimate things to without judgment, without condemnation, but with defense and with grace and with open-handedness, I'm your guy. Also this, we're broken humans. We're flawed. We mess up, all of us. And Jesus said, one thing I'm gonna do that's fundamental to everything of this invitation is when you sin, when you fall short of your potential and what I created you to actually be, when you sin and miss the mark, I have forgiveness for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's not a contract. I won't rip it up. I won't put you on waivers. I won't trade you to another team. I won't kick you out of the league. I won't black sheep you. You can just keep coming back to the cross. You can keep coming back to the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? You want wholeness this Christmas? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'm so proud to pronounce that. I don't got anything else for you. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I've lived it. So with every head bowed out of respect and every eye closed, I'm gonna keep mine open just so I can pray with you and celebrate with you. Um, This literally, I promise you, even if you do not know it today, will be the single most important best day of your life. I promise you that. If you're in here and you've never received the saving work of Jesus, but you know this is your moment, you can feel it in your heart. That's just the spirit wooing you home right now. Would you raise your hand and keep it up? Just raise your hand. It's an act of faith. It is beautiful to God. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Keep them up because it takes me a minute. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I see that in the back. Let me come to the middle now. Yes, multiple hands. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, I see you back there. Come on over here now. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Thank you. I thank you, God. So many people today receiving your invitation. This is what Christmas is all about. This is the beauty of who you are, Jesus. You save people. You redeem people. You restore people. And so, Jesus, we just thank you for every hand that was raised. Uh, And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would do what you do best. Fill them with streams of living water to overflowing as they've crossed over from death to life. Would you let them see and feel and sense that life? God, we thank you that today is the day of salvation and we give this morning to you. Now, every person that's long already made that decision, I pray, Lord, now that you would bless them, that you would keep them in the grip of your grace today, that you would cause your face to shine all over them, that you would be radically gracious to them, that you would turn your countenance towards them and they would walk out of these doors with a peace that passes understanding. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all my friends said, Amen. As you're walking out, I want to put these uh, service times up on the screen one more. There's plenty of uh, time and opportunity for you guys to not only come, but to bring family members, bring friends. It is going to be awesome. We love you guys.